0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you, and all of them are streaming. None of them came out in theaters. The reason I have not reviewed any theatrically released movies, or at least... Movies that were not released exclusively in theaters is because I purposefully did not go to the movies this week. The reason for that is because of the COVID uh, Delta variant scare. And I'm sad to announce that uh, my girlfriend and her roommate tested positive for COVID. I actually went to a clinic myself last week and tested negative, but I'm still quarantining as much as I can. Of course, I took some time out to come to this studio because it's a little bit like a ghost town. Even though the equipment and everything else works and I know that there are people sort of overlords who are listening to me there isn't anyone else here I usually come here and I'm the only car that parks in the driveway so yeah doing this show is kind of like sort of unofficially quarantining but you also get to hear my thoughts and opinions so it works out well for everyone I think so My first movie that I'm going to review for you is Reminiscence and Reminiscence is the latest starring Hugh Jackman, Tandy Newton, and Rebecca, Rebecca, excuse me, Rebecca Ferguson amongst other people. And it's kind of interesting because you have Hugh Jackman and Tandy Newton, both of whom are Australian actors and here they play Americans, but Obviously not the first time that's happened for either actor or for multiple Australian actors in an American movie. But anyway, reminiscence is in a way reminiscent of other neo-noirs that have come before it. Movies like Blade Runner and Minority Report amongst others, but... It's obviously inspired by those films, but I wouldn't call it a ripoff of those films. Actually, any piece of art that comes out today or in the recent past, whether it's a movie, a TV show, video game, comic book, novel, even just a painting, everyone's inspired by those who came before them. And if they, if they say they're not inspired by them. They are lying, but I still thought, you know, even though you can draw comparisons to other movies that came before reminiscence, I still thought it was an excellent film, just putting it out there, but it talks, it it tells the story about a private investigator whose name is Nick Bannister, who lives in Miami in hopefully the distant future. And by that, I mean that Miami has a lot of technological advances, but. It is also partly underwater because of climate change. I thought that was actually a very nice touch to it. And the wealthy people who live in Miami live in places where it's virtually impossible to have the rising ocean level touch them or get them wet. I I liked that part of the film. But anyway, Nick Bannister is a private investigator of the mind. And what that means is not only does he work as a private investigator in collaboration with the Miami police, but he also runs a clinic where people can have lucid dreaming that will bring them back to a memory they had or a time and a place. And it's actually pretty fascinating to see people put on this headgear and revert back to a a previous time. And the movie also delves into the idea that this kind of nostalgia, this virtual nostalgia can be addicting in and of itself, especially when the co-private investigator, whose name is Emily Watts Sanders who's played by Tandy Newton, is a recovering alcoholic herself. But anyway, Nick Bannister is navigating the alluring world of the past when his life is changed by a new client by the name of May. And May is a femme fatale who is played by Rebecca Ferguson. And Rebecca Ferguson is a Swedish actress. Uh, You wouldn't know it from watching this film. She's been in, actually, two Mission Impossible films the last... Um, two that have been made. She was she had a supporting role in Doctor Sleep, which was Stephen King's sequel to The Shining, where she played Rose the Hat, and she was also in a 2017 movie called Life, which I have not seen. But anyway, May leads Nick Bannister down a rabbit hole where a simple case becomes an obsession for Nick Bannister after May disappears and he fights to learn the truth about her. So I should also note that this, this movie, even though it, it, it has the feel of not only a neo-noir, obviously, but also a graphic novel is actually an original story created by writer and director, Lisa joy. And Lisa joy is, as far as I know, an American, uh, director. She has previously produced episodes of TV shows like burn notice and Westworld. And she's only directed one episode of Westworld before directing reminiscence. So this is her big screen or rather her feature film debut. And I should also note that reminiscence is a film that is not only in theaters, but it's also available for streaming on HBO max because I am doing something very close to self quarantining right now. I saw it on HBO max and I actually think it would be, it would work very well on the big screen, which is, as I usually say, the great, the, the best way to experience any kind of movie, but for what I have right now, HBO max will certainly do, but this movie certainly has a lot of twists and turns as you might expect from not only a neo-noir, which is a mystery, but also one that deals with memories and how, even when this contraption brings you back to the past. So not only can you see it, but you can also feel it, smell it, experience it. Human memories are still malleable, but in addition to reminiscence being a very smart thriller, I think, it also had some great action sequences, especially when this femme fatale new client by the name of May has a lot more to her than the surface. And I do have to say that a a lot of times, noirs fall into a bit of a cliche where there's a beautiful woman who walks into a detective's office, and if you can tell right away that it's the femme fatale who walks into the office in the beginning who is the culprit in the very end, it's not a very good mystery. That kind of plot twist has been done several times before. I think even Mickey Spillane gave it up when he was writing his detective novels. But I think this movie does move beyond that cliche of the femme fatale being the culprit or the one who consulted the main detective in the movie only for him to find that She was with it all along and this movie actually does have some very good plot twists, not only with the femme fatale played by Rebecca Ferguson, but also with some of the other clients we meet in the very beginning. And I'm not going to tell you what the twists are. I will say, however, that there is one associate of Rebecca Ferguson's character who Hugh Jackman's character tracks down and there is a really neat uh, chase between the two of them. And I'm not going to reveal too much about what happens, but there is a scene involving a piano, which is very well choreographed and also uh, very well done. And also there's that added tension where Hugh Jackman's character as the private eye or the yeah private investigator can't kill anyone who's particularly dangerous if they've been associated with, the character may cause otherwise a part of the mystery will be lost. So fortunately the technology that he has can help him track down the past. So as I said, th- this movie can be easily compared to Blade Runner to minority report and also it reminded me a lot of a movie starring Robin Williams that he did in uh, 2004, it was one of the 35% of dramas that Robin Williams did, and it was a movie called The Final Cut. The Final Cut was not a box office hit, but I think it found a little bit of a following on home video. It also co-starred Mira Sorvino and Jim Caviezel, and it was also about how technology can help memories, but it can also reveal how malleable human memories are depending on the biases of the people who have those memories. So again, reminiscence is not a ripoff of any of these other films. I think it actually stood a a good, um, storytelling advantage over some of these films. And again, it was obviously inspired by these previous films, but, By no means was it a ripoff, and I did like the atmosphere of the story. I liked particularly the contrast between downtown Miami where the streets are literally flooded and people have gotten used to actually walking on the streets and literally getting their feet wet. And I also like the contrast between that and the people who lived the high life pretty much on top of a dam where it's practically inevitable that they won't get wet. So I thought it made a very good implicit statement about the state of global warming. Just just very implicit. But also, I, I just thought it was a good mystery, a, a great action film, and certainly a good detective tale. And there are twists and turns, not just at the very end, but also within the story that I really got into. So it's great seeing Hugh Jackman and Tandy Newton. Those are two actors who I think are still A-listers, or at least Hugh Jackman is, but we haven't seen them for a while. But I really got into the story here. I'm very surprised it wasn't based on a previous book or a graphic novel, but I'm thankful for that. And I am pleasantly surprised that director and writer Lisa joy came up with such an original tale here again, as I said before, the, the inspiration is obvious, but reminiscence still gets my rating of a knockout. I think that the acting in the film is really good. I think Hugh Jackman makes a great lead role. I think this was his very first time playing a detective, but based on his performance here, hopefully it's not his last and also the supporting performances by the likes of Rebecca Ferguson, Tandy Newton, Cliff Curtis, Angela Serafian, and others are certainly worth remembering. Even with my malleable human memory, I still recommend reminiscence. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Sweet Girl. This is a movie that premiered on August 20th, 2021, exclusively on Netflix. It stars Jason Moma. Um, I hope I pronounced that name right. Uh, Forgive me if I didn't. It also co-stars Isabella Merced, who is an actress I've been watching for a long time. She used to be known as Isabella Moner, but she legally changed her name, or at least made Isabella Merced her stage name in honor of her grandmother. I'm not going to get into that too much, but it is a very sweet sentiment, and you can look look up why that was, but uh, this is an action film, and it is about a devastated husband whose wife dies of cancer and... His daughter, who's played by Isabella Merced, is his only family for whom he's fighting. But he vows to bring justice to the people responsible for his wife's death while protecting the only family he has left, as I previously mentioned, his daughter. So the name of the movie, as I said, is Sweet Girl, which is not the best name for this movie, I would think. I would probably have to brainstorm Another better name, but I could probably come up with five that are better than the title sweet girl. Uh, and maybe three of those aren't copyrighted maybe, but I, I bet that if I really, really stuck to it, I could come up with better names. But regardless, uh, the movie takes place in Pittsburgh present day and It it follows a man by the name of Ray Cooper, who's played by Jason Moma, who I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, is best known for being in the DC Extended Universe, where he played Aquaman, both in the sadly not quite so good Justice League movie and in the better but still not great Aquaman uh, film, but at least Jason Moma showed his acting chops in that film. And I think he actually does have some good acting scenes in here, especially when his wife, whose name is Amanda, who's played by uh, an actress named Adria Arjona falls victim to cancer. Now who is responsible for her, uh, his wife's death? Well, it turns out there is a pharmaceutical company who has a very promising drug that will, um, alleviate the symptoms of cancer, if not completely cure it, which I think in this day and age is a bit unrealistic, but the head of this pharmaceutical company is named Simon Keeley, and he is played by an appropriately smug actor named Justin Bartha and the pharmaceutical company that Simon Keeley is the CEO of, despite looking no older than 35, is charging way too much for this potentially life-saving drug. And this is actually an echo of some certain pharmaceutical companies who drove up the price to very unaffordable rates for at the expense, not only of people who couldn't afford it, but also people who were dying from a certain disease, but in any event, <laughs> Jason Moma calls him on a, uh, CNN talk show and tells him that he is going to hunt him down if his wife dies. And as it turns out, <laughs> his wife dies and it's not just that the pharmaceutical company got greedy, but it's also, there's a, a conspiracy into why the pharmaceutical company charged as much as it did and what connections it has in Washington, which I didn't think all those other plot twists were particularly necessary. Sometimes there are necessary plot twists and sometimes there aren't, but I think just having the villain of the movie be the pharmaceutical company, I think would have been enough. But there was another plot twist that unfortunately seemed completely unnecessary, and I'm not going to reveal it for you right now, but I, I, I really want to reveal it just to tell you what the weakness of the story is as a result of this plot twist, but I'm not going to do that. I really, really have to bite my tongue, figuratively speaking, to withhold this from you. If I bit my tongue literally, I wouldn't have anything to say, and there'd just be a lot of dead air except for my uh, groaning. But in any event, I do think Jason Moma and Isabella Merced work very well together. And as I said previously, Isabella Merced is an actress I've been seeing or noticing for a very long time. Sometimes she's been in really bad movies like, for example, uh, Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life, which was a film that I was hoping I could relate to, but when I saw it, it was just one of those candy-coated junior high movies where the junior high kids look like teenagers who are about to go off to college, but I did remember Isabella Merced from that movie. I loved her, though, in Sicario Day of the Soldado, Instant Family, and uh, Dora and the Lost City of Gold, which came out um, two or three years ago, uh, all those films, so she certainly is a very talented actress, not to mention she's really pretty, but of course I'm, <laughs> I have a girlfriend, so I'm going to move on from that, but I did, I didn't really, uh, particularly like th- a lot of the twists, almost all of the twists in this film. What, what the film needed, I think in this case was one really great twist and also one that no one particularly saw coming. The major twist in this film was one I, I would probably say no one saw coming, but it was very contrived and didn't work particularly well. It also hinted at the idea that one of the characters who experienced this plot twist may have had mental problems, which I don't think was the point of this film at all. Plus, there's another inconsistency of this film where Jason Momoa, J- Jason Moma. Again, that name, I got to figure out how to pronounce that. And, uh, Isabella Merced are on the run from the feds and they just keep driving, but it never occurs to Jason Moma who has long hair in this movie and a giant beard to cut his hair and shave his beard because Jason Moma looks more like a lion than Bert Lahr did in the wizard of Oz. If they do a remake of the wizard of Oz, I don't think they'll ever do that because the wizard of Oz is a classic Jason Moma could easily play the lion based on looks alone. Would he come off as cowardly? Yeah, maybe I I wouldn't put it past Jason Moma, but the point is he is a very recognizable figure, no matter where he goes in the United States. If the FBI is after him, they're going to look for a guy with long hair and a beard as well as a very pretty daughter. Of course, the the pretty daughter, you can't really do very much about that. But there are even some times where Isabella Merced is supposed to be incognito and she goes around wearing dark clothes and a baseball cap, but it doesn't occur to her, even though she's supposed to be smart, to take her hair and put it into her hat rather than having her hair down as she's wearing the baseball cap. It's these and other inconsistencies that really don't work for this movie, sweet girl. And it's really a shame because Jason Moma and Isabella Merced are very good actors. There's also an actress who plays a sympathetic FBI detective. She's played by a very pretty actress named Lex Scott Davis. And the dynamic between this FBI detective and Jason Moma and Isabella Merced's characters was also rather predictable, but I think given... The, the limits of the screenplay, Lex Scott Davis did a good job in her role. But again, the story needed some major work. They should have pulled at least three of these plot twists out and should have just gone with a vengeful father getting back at the pharmaceutical companies. And I think, especially with this day, day and age, with American healthcare and its high costs being a subject of hot debate, that could have been a compelling film, especially when in real life, there are greedy CEOs of pharmaceutical companies who do jack up the price of their life-saving medication because they can. And it's it's horrific and it would make the subject of a compelling documentary. But Sweet Girl tried to take on way too much and also the the title of the movie didn't really work. Again, it's not just about the girl in the story and sweet might be a little sarcastic or a little facetious, but it, it doesn't really work as even a a joke to people who might see the film. After all, this film is an action drama. So why is the title of this film being ironic? It just doesn't particularly work very well. So sweet girl is not a movie that I hated, but it gets my rating of a strikeout. If there were any other actors in this film who would have done a worse job than Jason MoMA or Isabella Merced, I'd give this movie my lower rating of a flunk out, but the story is a mess. And even though modern day Pittsburgh in this movie looks really good again, they should have just stuck to one movie, uh, one movie plot thread, maybe added a one, two twists maximum within it, but the twists that are in this film about conspiracy theories and also about identity just don't work. In addition to the fact that there are things that the two main characters do in this movie when they're on the run, that people who actually are on the run and are desperate not to get caught just shouldn't do. So sweet girl is a miss. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that premiered on Netflix on August 18th, 2021. It comes from the makers of another docuseries exclusively on Netflix, which I did see, but I did not review it for you on the show. And I think it's a little bit too late for me to review it. The docu, the docu series on Netflix, um, from the that the this uh, documentary team previously made was one called "Don't F with Cats." It was a four-part series, and it was really intricately detailed, and not also it was very watchable. I can't say the same for this one-part documentary, which is called. Memories of a Murderer, The Nielsen Tapes. As I said, it premiered on Netflix on August 18th, 2021, and it is about serial killer Dennis Nielsen, who narrates his life and horrific crimes via a series of chilling audio tapes recorded from his jail cell. So as I was watching this film, I was reminded of Don't F with Cats, and I was also reminded about another four-part Netflix documentary that was about Ted Bundy, which also revolved around tapes that Ted Bundy recorded. That four-part series was addictive. As a matter of fact, I watched that four-part series twice, and I may even watch it a third time if I have some downtime. I probably won't be doing the same with the Nielsen tapes because truth be told, I didn't know very much about Dennis Nielsen before watching this documentary, but he is, or was because he's deceased now. He was a Scottish serial killer who relocated to London, England, and he murdered at least, at least 12 young men and boys between 1978 and when he was arrested in 1983. So this man is undoubtedly evil, but of course, he's fascinating, very, very similar to Ted Bundy and other serial killers. But that's not actually the the part of this movie that I didn't particularly like what I didn't particularly like about it was the fact that it fell into a lot of serial killer documentary cliches, not necessarily in its setup, but almost in the interviews that it has with uh, various people, a lot of people said that they first saw Dennis Nielsen on TV and when they took a fir- a, a good look at him, the, the first thing that came to mind was he seems like an ordinary person. That's kind of how serial killers operate. If they looked like monsters, they'd be caught in an instant. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just uh, people's reaction. I shouldn't. L- let me put it to you this way. I shouldn't say people's reactions are cliches, but it should have been one of those things that this, this documentary took out. But the thing that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way about this documentary was great documentaries are not all that different from great dramatic movies. Both of them have to tell a compelling story. And one of the things that I, I felt when I was watching this film was I was mesmerized every time I heard Dennis Nielsen on tape, uh, I wanted to know a little bit more about who recorded these tapes, but you don't actually find out until the very end. When you actually meet the person who recorded them, you should have met this person in the very beginning. And when you, when you hear Dennis Nielsen speak, he does sound absolutely creepy That shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. His voice actually reminded me quite a bit of Malcolm McDowell's voice in a clockwork orange, and if you've seen a clockwork orange, you know, just how wry and ironic it is. Yes. But also how creepy Malcolm McDowell's character, Alex is, uh, yeah. Malcolm McDowell certainly brought the creepiness to that role. He hasn't been in a movie that has been quite as creepy. He's still a great actor, but again, the the creepiness was at its peak when he was in A Clockwork Orange. So whenever Nielsen was speaking on these tapes, I was mesmerized. But the problem with this movie was it kept going back and forth between, uh, um, events and also witnesses, as well as people who were related to or knew, the victims in question and what resulted is unfortunately a jumbled mess. Documentaries can't do not necessarily have to be in chronological order to be compelling, but sometimes even dramatic films that are out of order, they need to be out of order for a reason, not just a stylistic purpose and the, Te- the Ted Bundy documentary, the four part series, which was also a Netflix original that aired in 2018 was not exactly chronological, but all of Ted Bundy's crimes were. And the only parts where it cut out of the chronological order was when they brought it back to Ted Bundy in prison right before meeting his fate in the electric chair. But There was also in that docu-series, a timeline that brought you to where the story took place. And there wasn't such a timeline here in Memories of a Murderer. Again, murderers are, whether you like them or not, fascinating people. They are ruthless and obviously I don't condone what they did, but it is very intriguing from a forensic standpoint to know why people who seem smart and could do good in the world, not just do well, do good. Um, if they so choose why they decide to go the other way and you won't get as in depth, a psychological study of Dennis Nielsen in this documentary. You also won't get how Dennis Nielsen died. He was apprehended in 1983 and stayed in prison until he died in 2018. And he died of pulmonary embolism and retroperitoneal hemorrhage. Now, I'm amazing. I, I'm amazed I could say those words, but not pronounce Jason Moma's last name, or at least. Not correctly, as far as I know, but in any event, memories of a murderer is especially compared to other documentaries, even Netflix documentaries about murderers. One of the least compelling murder documentaries I've seen, which is why it gets my rating of a strikeout. It probably would be a flunk out if there weren't the tapes, for instance. But I did think that the movie could have used some better editing, particularly when they interview people who either knew Dennis Nielsen, um, personally or knew one of his victims or arrested him. But there are moments where the movie just kind of pauses it literally pauses. And by that, I mean that the camera just focuses on one of the interview subjects, just sitting down doing nothing. And sometimes those moments are appropriate. Sometimes they're just flat out boring. And in this case, my attention span was tested several times while watching Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen tapes, and with as compelling a subject, it really shouldn't have been tested. It should have had my full attention. And because of the mess of a narrative framework that it had, it just didn't. (laughs) Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters this week, uh, the week of August 23rd through August twenty. 20- 7th, 2021. And there are a number of good movies that are coming out in theaters and on streaming. And after I have done my self imposed quarantining, I'll go back to the movies. Although I will be very cautious when I do. And even if you're vaccinated, I hope you are too. Because just because you're vaccinated does not mean that you can't test positive for COVID. That's what we used to think, but the Delta variant has. Proven otherwise. So, with that said, here are the movies that are subject to be released in theaters for the weekend of August 27th, 2021. The first one is Candyman. And Candyman is actually produced by Jordan Peele. And it's directed by a woman by the name of Nia DaCosta. And it is a remake of the 1992 film, which I haven't seen. But Nia DaCosta is remaking it with African-American actors and she herself is African-American. Although she, uh, previously before candy man directed a, only one feature film and it was called little woods. So this will be my introduction to her, um, feature film repertoire and the movie, uh, is a quote unquote spiritual sequel. To the horror film Candyman. So it's not a remake. But it returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood. Where the legend began. This will be interesting. And I kind of hope I can get to see the original Candyman. Because that movie came out when I was nine years old. So there's no way I would have seen it. Because my parents were up until the time I was 13. Very strict about me not seeing R-rated films. I think the only R-rated films I saw before the age of 13 were Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Pretty Woman, and The Joy Luck Club. And these were very, very tame R-rated movies. In fact, looking back, they should have been rated PG-13. But this version of Candyman, um, which is also called Candyman, by the way, stars Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Teona Paris, Nathan Stewart Jarrett, and Coleman Domingo. Of these four actors, Teona Paris is the only one I know, and she's a great actress, very underrated too, and I will do my best to see this Candyman, even if I haven't seen the original from 1992, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. The other movie that is coming out, or subject to be coming out in theaters this coming weekend is one that's called The Colony, and this is set in the distant future. And it is about a female astronaut who is shipwrecked on the long, decimated Earth who must decide the fate of the Wasteland's remaining populace. This movie stars Nora Arnesder, I hope I pronounced that name right, uh, Sarah Sophie Bussanina, uh Ayn Glenn, and Sopi Dirisu. And this movie is obviously a foreign movie, or I would presume it's a foreign movie, based on the names of the actors in it. It's directed by a man by the name of Tim Fellbaum. And Tim Fellbaum is actually from Switzerland. So my guess is that this is a Swiss film. It sounds very intriguing, but is it going to come out in a movie uh, theater near me? I'm not counting on it. But if it does and I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is coming out in theaters or subject to be released in theaters is one that is called... Together Now this one is particularly time, uh, timely, and I'm very intrigued to see this one because it sounds a bit like Oscar bait. And when I say Oscar bait, I don't necessarily mean it's going to be a wannabe Oscar film. Oscar bait can be good films as well for which the Oscars take the bait, but this sounds very promising. It is about a husband and wife who are forced to reevaluate themselves and their relationship through the reality of the COVID-19 lockdown. You know movies about COVID-19 are coming. It's going to be a while before we see more COVID-19 movies, but COVID-19 has impacted all of us all over the world, so it is inevitable that they're going to make not only documentaries about COVID-19, of which they've made a few already, but also feature films about COVID-19 and about people's reactions to them. So this movie together stars James McAvoy, great actor there, Sharon Horgan and Samuel Logan. But I don't know uh, if this film is going to be released in theaters. I mean, it's, it's subject to be released in theaters, but I don't know if it's also going to be released on streaming. I hope it's being released in either way. It's directed by Stephen Daldry and Justin Martin. Although a movie with three people, I don't know why two people would direct a movie like that, but that's what IMDb is telling me. So Together is a film that I can't guarantee I'm going to see, but it sounds very intriguing and I will see it if it's, if it's coming out in theater near me and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I do see it. So now on to... Movies that will be on streaming or will be premiering on streaming for the week of August 23rd through August 27th. And there actually is a Netflix original film that is going to be premiering on Netflix on uh, Monday, August 23rd. And the movie is called The Witcher Nightmare of the Wolf. This is a Netflix original film and it is about a man by the name of Vesemir who escaping from poverty to become a witcher, slays monsters for coin and glory. But when a new menace rises, he must face the demons of his past. I also should note that The Witcher, uh, Nightmare of the Wolf, is an animated film, which features, it might be a foreign film too. I, I don't entirely know for sure. Actually, it's directed by Il Han, So yeah, it definitely is a foreign film. But it does not uh, look like there are many well-known actors who are the American voices of some of these characters, or English-speaking voices, I should say. There are some relatively well-known actors, but no A-listers. The voices in the American dub here are Graham McTavish, Theo James, Lara Pulver, and Mary McDonald. So some of these Names I know, they probably aren't ones that you know. But this is actually based on the book series The Witcher, which was written by Andrzej Sapkowski. Again, these these foreign names sometimes, they're a little bit difficult to pronounce. And I think that there was a movie called The Witcher that was released in 2019, and it starred Henry Cavill and Anna Schaefer. And this was a film that was also a Netflix original. Oh, excuse me. It's not a it's not a movie. It's a it's a TV series. And I was correct that it is a Netflix original. I'm pretty sure the two are related. I wouldn't be surprised if they were not. But in any event, I don't know if I'm going to see this Netflix original film. I it's probably easy for me to seek out, but I don't know if I'm going to watch it and either be intrigued by it or be lost by it, but I might give it a chance. We'll see. So on Tuesday, August 24th, there is a Netflix original film about Caitlyn Jenner, and it is part of the Untold series. And Untold is a series of one hour to one hour, 15 minute documentaries. I don't know if I'm going to see that or if I do see it, I may or may not review it on this show, but we'll have to wait and see. On Wednesday, August 25th on Netflix, there are several, oh, actually there is one documentary which I will make it a point to watch. This one, get ready for the title, is Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. Now when I think of Bob Ross, I do think of the expression happy accidents. And Bob Ross has become um, one of those uh, cult figures I mean that in the best possible way over the last couple of years. It seems like when it comes to PBS personalities of the 70s and 80s and a little bit into the 90s, there is a trifecta of deservedly celebrated personalities on PBS. There's Julia Child, Fred Rogers, and Bob Ross. Is there anybody else in that um, realm? So far, no. But if they made a feature film about the partial biography of Julia Child and they made another one about Fred Rogers, they will inevitably make one about Bob Ross. I guarantee it, especially since Bob Ross had a very fascinating life, both before and during his time, um, hosting his painting show on PBS What I did not expect in the title of this documentary is it to be called Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. Betrayal and Greed. I don't know how that could be in the background of Bob Ross's life because when Bob Ross actually hosted his painting show on PBS, he actually didn't get paid for doing that show. He did it absolutely free. Uh, So I don't know where the greed comes from. The way he made his money was actually by teaching art to various um, students and also selling paint supplies in his name. He he was a very good marketer. And he also did something he loved, which is something to which we can all aspire at, at one point or another. And I know I certainly look up to this PBS trifecta because I am hosting a show from a community station. And I hope to eventually do this for a living and get paid for it someday, hopefully. But for now, I just look up to the trifecta. (laughs) So that documentary, Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed, will be premiering on Netflix on Wednesday, August 25th. I'm going to say that I will see that movie. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another documentary that's going to be premiering is one that's called John of God, The Crimes of a Spiritual he- Healer. This sounds very uh, fascinating. and certainly sounds like the real kind of cult movie. And I've got a description for you right here. So John the God is actually a limited series documentary. They say it's a Netflix original. And the synopsis is not uh ready for me. So I will move on. So I can't guarantee that I'm going to be uh reviewing that, but that's it for the Netflix document or the Netflix no. no Netflix Originals on Wednesday, August 25th. But there are some um uh, Netflix original movies. Actually, there's one that will be premiering on Friday, August 27th. And this is one of those movies that when I see the title, I know that I am going to Ah, uh, maybe not like this film so much. The name of the movie is He's All That. Yep, you heard me right. He's All That. This is a sequel to the 1999 surprise hit She's All That, which was, dispir- which was distributed by, of all unlikely companies, Miramax. And Miramax went a little Hollywood after uh, She's All That. Um, understandably so, but as it turns out, this movie is about a teenage girl who sets out to give a nebbish classmate the ultimate high school makeover. And they say it's an updated remake of the 1990 fil- nah, nah, 1999 film. She's all that. As I said, and actually there are some people who appeared in the original. She's all that who are appearing in this film as well. But I was wrong when I said it's a sequel. It, it actually is a remake. Rachel Lee cook, who played the, the, she, and she's all that her name was Lainey, is playing a character by the name of Anna Sawyer in this one. And I like Rachel Lee cook. She is so much better than the Hallmark movies. She's usually in also Matthew Lillard is in this film as well. And Matthew Lillard played the character of Brock Hudson, who was the wannabe celebrity, who was only a, a reality show star. People knew who he was, but he was very much like Puck from the real world in the sense that he was a controversial figure, but that was pretty much all he was. Take away the reality show, he's pretty much nothing. I didn't understand why his name was Brock Hudson, though. That kind of flew over my head, because was the movie saying, because his name sounded like Rock Hudson, that... He's gay. I I don't know. I didn't get that impression at all, but Matthew Lillard is also in the update of uh, this movie, which seems candy coated and admittedly she's all that was also very predictable as well. It it was basically a teenage rich kids remake of my fair lady, as well as some other similarly themed uh, stories from before. I don't think I'm going to like he's all that, but I'm going to see it and I will let you know what I think on next week's show, but I'm telling you right now, I am not happy about it. I'm not happy, (laughs) but anyway, moving on. So on other popular podcasting platforms, podcasting platforms, other streaming platforms like Amazon prime, for example, there appears to be one, um, Amazon original special, and it's called Pete, the cat back to school operetta. My guess is that Pete, the cat is a cartoon show, uh, but I don't entirely know. I've never heard of it, but it's a special. So it's unlikely that I will be reviewing for it for you on next week's show. So we are moving on. Although I will say that on Friday, August 20th, a film premiered on Amazon original that was called a net And I did not get to see that. So maybe I'll review that for you on next week's show. We'll have to see. Apple TV, I don't get. So I will move on from there. But there is a film that I am dying to see that I did not get the chance to see because it's on Apple TV and also because I am taking a sabbatical from a temporary sabbatical from going to the movies because of COVID 19 concerns. I'm dying to see the movie COVID. uh, Excuse me. COVID. Coda. Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I'm dying to see the movie CODA. CODA is an acronym for Children of Deaf Adults. I've been hearing a lot about this movie. It looks like an Oscar contender, not just Oscar bait. But that is a movie I will also strive to see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Disney+, Plus, there are no Disney Plus original anything premiering on Friday, August 27th, although the movie Cruella will be making its first appearance on regular Disney plus. And by regular Disney plus, I mean the non premiere where you don't have to pay 30 bucks just to see one film. So if you haven't seen Cruella, I highly recommend it. It's going to be premiering on Disney plus mainstream on Friday, August 27th. And it is an excellent film. I gave it my rating of a knockout. And that's all I'm going to say about it because I've already reviewed it for you. But on uh, HBO Max, there are no um, movies that are going to be premiering that are HBO originals except for a docuseries finale called 100 Foot Wave, which I would presume would be about surfing, but I don't entirely know. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.